Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces Podcast, episode 440, and yes, it's a biggie. I'm joined today by Mr. Stephen Fry. I mean, what more can I say? Need I say more? I mean, I will. I'm going to say more. But yeah, obviously I was hugely excited to have Stephen on, and you're going to find out that he very much delivered we've been as we'll discuss we've been lining this up for a while but it was more than worth the wait um i think you're going to really enjoy it if this is your first time tuning in first of all you can have a fourth welcome here but um check out the back catalog previous guests include everyone from louis theroux to mary j blige uh john ronson to i don't know spike lee florence Pugh. James McAvoy, Michael Fassbender, Stuart Lee, Richard Herring, Adam Buxton, Joe Cornish, Sarah Pascoe, Ashlyn B, Elena Heady. Loads of amazing people, basically. Dizzy Rascal. Yeah, there's been a variation, as you can tell. I'm going to get into the podcast relatively quickly because I'm as excited as you are, guys. But before I do, I want to tell you that I'm going to start streaming on Twitch soon. Um, I know I've been teasing it for a long time now. I've had a Twitch channel for ages, and I mainly watch people. I watch previous guest Blind Boy, and previous guest Limmy, and previous guest David Earl, and previous guest Dan Lassac. These are all people I watch on Twitch, um, and a few of them have given me some tips and some advice, and I'm going to be starting up soon. I may or may not be doing something that involves Limmy and being part of something he's been doing. Genuinely, that's still to be decided as I record this, but I wanted to tease it with you. And what I mainly want to say is head over to twitch.tv forward slash Pipio and give me a follow. Because, yeah, I've been I've been wanting to stream on there for a while, but I've always kind of put it off and thought, oh, no, nah, there's no interest or whatever. So it's been really nice to see the page getting a bit of a following before I've even streamed. And it's kind of, that's played a large part in what's given me the confidence to kind of go, all right, well, let's... Give that a go. I'll probably be streaming some playing of games, some DJing, um, potentially, uh, terms of service allowing. Might do some chat, might jump on there and do some little mini podcasts, who knows. But tons of stuff that might be of of interest. If you're not familiar, Twitch is a streaming platform. So, uh, yeah, get over there and give me a a follow if you would. Um, Let's get on with the podcast. As ever... We're brought to you by speechdevelopment.com and patreon.com forward slash Pip. That's where you can get my merch or support the podcast on Patreon. But I won't go on about that too long because I've just rambled on about Twitch to you for about a minute. This was a joy, you know, to go from 10, 15 years ago, from Thou Shall Not Question Stephen Fry, to Thou Shall Jump on Zoom and quite literally question Stephen Fry. I'm joined today by the national treasure himself, Mr. Stephen Fry. How are you, sir? I'm very well, thank you, Pip. Very well indeed, and delighted to be talking to you because, as we can tell your listeners, it's been a few years that uh, I've had to put off, I think, at least three times by very bad luck, our, our meeting. 
but all all for really good reasons yeah. as well. So I'm 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 delighted that we're here now, and I want to talk about a lot of things. Again, I want to just start off by just yes, seeing how you are. It's it's been strange times, isn't it? I guess so. So w- w- where are you at the moment in mentally and so on and so forth? Well, pretty good, thanks, Pip. I mean, you know. Uh... I've got so much less to complain about than many others. I've got a kind of security as far as work is concerned. And even though this pandemic has hit so many people in, in our business, music and performing arts and so on, I have the good fortune that I have a lot to do in writing terms, which you only need a pen, pencil, keyboard, screen, yeah. and audiobooks and recordings of various things. And yeah. I uh, have a little sort of voice booth sound studio at my house in Norfolk. So I've been able, over the past two years, I think I did in the first year of lockdown, 25 audiobooks, for example. Wow. So that was wow. a nice thing. It just kept me balanced and reasonably sane to pop down. I could go literally in my pyjamas first thing in the morning and, uh, uh, you know, just have something to do and feel not quite wasted i think that's the problem i I love it it's i think it's the sanity part as much as anything else on 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 those things i moved into acting a few years back and quite soon into that i was encouraged to start writing my own scripts and that has been a godsend in this pandemic because i've just been able to go right i'm just going to work on scripts no idea if any of them will ever go anywhere but i get to be creative and i get to express my thoughts and ideas and feel worth as strange as it sounds i think everyone in the creative arts we have had to face how much of our worth is put on audiences (laughs) which is a a, a scary thing and suddenly you're like well who am i i'm if That's I'm it. if I'm not in front of anyone, am I a Scroobius Pip? Am I yeah. <laughs> am I David Meads? Who am I? What, what That's is this? The way we keep score, yeah. isn't it? Uh, in, and the number of laughs, the uh, the number of people who come to the theatres and the venues, uh, yeah. the number of clicks, the number of everybody these days is in some way uh, their value and their f- fulfilment and their sense of themselves seems to be represented by a metric. Uh, uh, likes, um, favourites, followers, all those kind of things, which are something we're more used to perhaps in the in show business because that's how many people have booked tickets, you know, is is precisely that. And it goes all the way back to our sense of inadequacy and horror and shame and loneliness in the schoolyard when when we felt we were unpopular or we weren't asked to join that gang, you know. We never lose that. It seems to be a deep part of being human and technology and the shrinkage of uh, human interaction that the pandemic caused seems to have exacerbated that I guess and that does have reflect you mentioned mental health as well and that does uh, unquestionably for, for, for lots of people particularly the young seem to have a real blowback as far as just ease is concerned I, I like using the word ease because we use disease disease a lot yeah. as a word and it's sort of almost lost its sense of being coupled to the word ease yeah and uh i wouldn't say contentment or happiness they're almost too much to ask for in life aren't they yeah but yeah just a bit of ease you know yeah. which is kind of freedom from anxiety and stress we're never going to be free of those things but a kind of averagely uh free free uh time from those if you like yeah completely what's what's kind of your relationship with social media these days because you've touched upon the kind of 
the the the, the gamification of our lives. Mm. We're collecting gold coins in l- likes or follows or retweets and things like that. So yeah. we have kind of unaware, un, un, subconsciously turned so much of our lives into a comp- into a computer game. But you were very much an early adopter of Twitter. It was seeing you on there that made me go. I'm going to give that one a look. So, I so do you, apologize. You, you were there from the early days. You can't be held um, <laughs> responsible for all that's happened on Twitter since then. But what, how's your relationship developed with it? I guess in the changes of its and iterations of it over the years. Well, there's been a lot of hot and cold. I, I've um, I've left a couple of times uh, mm. in ways which have had me alternately described as storming off or, or throwing my. <laughs> toys out of the pram or whatever but yes i i mean i am a ridiculously sensitive person i i i do like to please people and and if i find sort of evidence of snarly you know meanness it it just breaks me and and i i have to run away from it really so on a couple occasions i've done that but what i've really come to now is that for me at least twitter is something where you contribute but you you don't uh, absorb anybody else's contributions which is a bit unfair and a bit one-sided but if you think of it as like a notice board for me it's a notice board if i'm if i've got a book out or a tv show or a film or whatever it might be um or something i want to share that i think is important in some way i will put it up on the notice board i get out my four drawing pins and put it up like the school notice boards you know the headmaster's notice the games notice the drama club notice board i i put it up and i walk away what i yeah. don't do is wait to see all the others clustering around it going what's he put up what's he oh oh that's pathetic so i try not to read anything that is you know, below the line, as it were, yeah. like on YouTube. Yeah. I regard it as like looking below the street level um, in life where all there is is se- the sewerage system. And that's what the, the comments pages are. I've very see. much got in the habit of posting anything that I have to post, either just before I start recording the podcast or just before I do a workout. So there isn't that temptation, at least for that first hour, to be ch- checking and seeing responses, being able to go, it's there. Yep. Now I'm not even tempted because I'm busy with something else because I think I'm too addicted. I get drawn into the oh, are people yeah. enjoying this? Are people are people paying attention? And, it's, and it's a weird what's one. so sad about it is that really a huge percentage of people are very very fine. They you know they they're witty. They're they're worth listening to. They have interesting ideas, interesting responses. They mm. represent the best of humanity. It's just. I mean, the image I've drawn before in the past is that when Twitter started and indeed the whole internet, really, I thought of it as like being a, a marvellous outdoor swimming pool, like a, like a Lido or something, you know. And you would just arrive and you'd dive in and you'd make friends and it was wonderful. And then, well, it doesn't matter how pure the water is, if it's 99% pure, but if there's a turd floating in the corner, <laughs> you're, you're going to get out. <laughs> <laughs> and what happened with Twitter was the weeds grew up from the bottom and, and the broken glass and the old prams and the rubbish filled up and yeah. the water began to stink. And and it is always unfair on the good and the wise and the kind, but uh, one just has to just walk away from that kind of <sighs> venomous atmosphere. It's not good for one. And yeah. uh, 
it's not good for those who 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 spend their life spewing out that poison either. I mean, they're they're in the ones one should feel most sorry for, really, because it's a sign of a deeply flawed and unhappy and um, life, a kind of outsider life, a, a feeling of not being connected, and that's something we all have. And there are different ways of responding to it, aren't there? You can feel uh, everyone else has somehow got the memo. Everyone else had that lesson about how to do everything from dancing in a nightclub to, um, you know, being relaxed and picking up potential partners and being picked up and, you know, the learning the dance of human life. And some of us always felt we just missed out on that lesson. Yeah. We must have had a dental appointment that afternoon or something while everyone yeah. else... And the result is either to feel lonely and bitter and estranged and annoyed by it. The other is to sort of take up a, a often preposterous, I suppose, a artistic, revolutionary, outsider pose that you want to be outside. You're like Raskolnikov in Crime and Punishment or whatever, you know, the immoralist in Gide or the outsider, indeed, in Albert Camus. You know, this kind yeah. of figure, I'm better. I don't want to be part of this muddy yeah. tribe, this mob of rugby-playing yahoos, <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> and... If one's honest, I think most of us have a feeling of both, that we want to be apart from the mob and we want to be a part of the mob. I completely relate, particularly when you were speaking there of, of using the analogy of, of of comfort in going and dancing and going and, and, yeah. and things like that. I, I was talking to a friend of, uh, last w a weekend about an incident that happened a few years ago. I was at, I was at a, a friend's birthday party and I don't particularly drink much these days it's not because of any any addiction or issues it's just i just choose not to but equally really very much sober i will not be getting on a dance floor there is not a chance but you know i'm <laughs> comfortable I. with that and then yeah. at this party unexpectedly to me the actor Ch channing T T tatum appeared who i just think is incredibly cool i'm it just is. really i'm kind of I'm... in awe of and he was having a good dance and i thought i really want he was dancing with a load of my mates. So I was like, I really want to dance with Channing Tatum. So I rushed to the bar and ordered three or four drinks because I had to quickly get to a level that I was comfortable doing something I wanted to do. I wanted to go and engage in this. And, That's yeah. brilliant. My night with Channing should be a little short story or something, shouldn't it? 100%. He's going to be completely unaware it ever I happened. I bet he was but... a good dancer as well because he's obviously very physical. He played yeah, a wrestler. A wonderful and... dancer. Yeah, 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 exactly. Well, I mean... I want to speak about our initial mm. connection because it'd be crazy not to. I, when at one point our, our connection in person was when uh, Phil Jupiter invited me along to a recording of QI, right. and I didn't know if you'd be aware of me or of a particular line in in, <laughs> in one of my songs, and you greeted me with such warmth and excitement because of the yeah, Thou shalt not question Stephen Fry, which was a key <laughs> part of my first ever single that got in the top 40 and all this kind of thing yeah. and it had got to you and it was uh, a positive it had got to me and of course with typical and uh, absurd uh, human paranoia I at first wondered whether it was ironic yeah. and I thought oh, yeah. and then I thought 
Well, it's just charming. I just love it. It's even if it is ironic that it's somehow perfect. And so I was delighted to meet you and, and very pleased to be in what was a wonderful number and a great song, I have to say. So, I mean, if you're going to be quoted, at least be quoted or uh, mentioned in, in, a, in a top piece of work. And I felt that I was. And, and speaking of quotes, the amount of people who went on to get Thou Shall Not Question Stephen Fry t- tattooed on their, on their yes. person, often on, on several people on their, on their, bottom um <laughs> but numerous different places I've, i remember having w- one picture shared by a, a young lady that she had to crop very carefully because it was very much just the top end of the pelvic kind of oh, really? bone so yeah it's, it's it's been a popular one <laughs> that's very that's lovely to know especially um as we're living in the shadow i don't know if you saw it someone uh, Times journalist called Melanie Phillips wrote this article saying that she was physically revolted by, felt nothing but revulsion, I think was the phrase, by tattoos. And it's caused this sort of outrage, uh, which is a common thing these days, as we know. Um, And it's got a lot of people thinking about tattoos. It's unquestionable, I think, that tattoos have become a big thing, a much bigger thing than they were when I was young. When I was young... You know, it was sailors uh, yeah. very often had tattoos. You, know, you think of Popeye with his anchor. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, sort of labourers and it was a blue collar, as they'd say in America, thing. But now I've got godchildren who've got them and uh, good friends who said, oh, I'm going to have a butterfly on the small of my back just to start off. And then they get more and more. And it, it, it's, it's interesting. I mean... <sighs> I think religious people have always hated it because it's almost as if I mean, it's in the Bible specifically, I think, as a taboo. It's non-kosher for Jewish people to have a tattoo. Mm. And it's almost as if you are denying the supremacy of what is laid down by religion if you decide to do what you like with your own body. Yeah, you're adapting yeah. God's perfect creation, I guess. Exactly. And uh, which... It has held in the West, but of course, I mean, I think what Melanie Phillips didn't think through was the people of the South Pacific and the Maori people and all mm. kinds of people around the world, in Africa and in Australia and elsewhere, for, uh, for whom body art and piercing and tattooing and a whole range of different sort of alterations uh, are hugely important and quasi-religious, really, have a sort of spiritual as well as an obvious physical meaning. And I almost thought, when I read her article, which I thought was absolutely repellent, um, I thought, she's she's basically forcing me to have one, because I'm going to have to choose a side now. <laughs> After 64 years, am I going to get my first ink? And I, I haven't quite decided yet. And my dad got, got his first tattoo, and I think it was his 60th birthday, and it was because his mum had always said, you can't get a tattoo, what will it look like when you're 60? So when he was 60, he got a tattoo to go, there you go. <laughs> Very it looks, good. It looks great. It looks it's, fine. It's less likely to sag. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, it's It's really interesting that I think so many of our moral outrage and arguments is so framed by such small areas um and and we we've seen it a, l- a lot in the pandemic but an easy example i found when doing s- some research on it was on gender politics and 
realizing that so many cultures have had more than two genders for the entirety of 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 their history yet we're very much it's a modern thing and we're trying to change people are trying to change what's what's true and it's like no there's Hmm. two genders is a modern thing you're so right it's the opposite it is one of the ironies of of this kind of culture war uh, exchange that it is those who who are upset by um, and regard it as just wokeness or you know cultural Marxism or whatever else they want to call it. They're the ones who are most ignorant of history. Yeah. <laughs> they, they they say, oh, they're, they're trying to airbrush history by putting down this statue. No, we're trying to highlight history. We're trying to yeah. show what the true history of a thing is, what what it bears, what language bears, what uh, icons and statuary and images bear, and and what our kind of story on 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 humanity, what it really has as a history and how recent so much that we take to be absolute in Mm. fact is Uh, and and it's a very good example you talk about you know gender and so on the greeks had a a very open sense of 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 a third gender and of uh, obviously they created that the the character character of hermaphroditus yeah and uh, this was a very holy and sacred thing it was really the romans uh, who didn't like that the romans had a virile militaristic uh, you know they were they were fascists literally fascists i mean the word fascist comes from the roman symbol for power the fasces which is a an axe with a bundle of rod tied in it which they would carry in their in their parades their marches and that fasces was a symbol of the power of the military and of 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 the authorities over whom uh, all romans um, essentially uh, had to subjugate their own will, and that's what fascism means, really. The the, yeah. the worship of and the imposition of power, Macht, as that in German, might, and so they got rid of a lot of the nuance of Greek mythology and the Greek way of looking at the world. They they kept Greeks really um, in in their empire because they they subjugated Greece. They kept Greeks as doctors because they recognised the scientific um, superiority of much of Greek thought. And uh, philosophers in, you know, Stoicism moved over to Rome. But real thinking and spiritualism and mythology and a kind of openness to human, the the ambiguity of being human in every mm-hmm. sense, not just a gender sense. but in, um, And the Greeks understood that and played with it and found it remarkable. But the Romans preferred things to be in a straight line. I always remember hearing that um, in Greek times, homosexuality was accepted and then realizing no it just wasn't a thing it wasn't something that was it considered something it, needed it, to be yeah, accepted it, yeah, it, there wasn't any acceptance it was yeah. people did what they desired as such rather than does that mean you're straight or gay or bi or you know all these other labels yes, it would be like saying people with blue eyes were accepted yes yeah, you know yeah. it's just that's yeah, yeah you're it, it is and of course, there was a culture of uh, and, and a sort of known culture of of, of, of gay relationships, but yes, and and not just and Greece is you know the, the European part, and we often regard as the the centre or, or the sort of uh, the fount of our own civilization. But in the South Pacific, again, uh, there's there's a great tradition in um, Tahiti, those sort of areas of of a whole class of. Not quite intersex, but a kind of uh, there's a word, uh, and they're they're held as very 
special parts of the community. They tend, if you go to places like Tahiti, Bora Bora, mm -hmm. whatever, you will find often in the bars there will be people waiting, uh, serving, who it's quite hard to determine their gender by looking at them, if you take look at them with yeah. Western eyes, because they adopt both and they have this very special role as being in service and they're much respected and much wanted. It's a, you know, it's a bit like uh, in the uh, old days of the Gilded Age of, uh, of New York to have an Irish concierge or porter outside your uh, house was a sign of great like having an english butler yeah and and similarly in the south you know, in in the south pacific to have to have these uh these very special people um is a sign of of it being a proper and splendid place they're very proud to have them and 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 this is repeated in various places in new guinea and elsewhere yeah. I'm, I'm i'm not exactly f full of this <laughs> i'm full of it in every sense of course <laughs> um but but a couple of years ago i was trying to get interest uh, in fr from a few broadcasters in a a sort of a mixture of a history of and a world snapshot of of gay culture and in how it how it exists in in different countries yeah. you know this this idea that i mean i have african friends who are just so horrified by the fact that people still repeat this idea that you know africa doesn't really have a gay history or it's, it, it was imported by the west it's, right. it's such manifest nonsense right and such a pity that we still have to have these arguments yeah, it's it's fascinating. Kind of to bring elements of everything there to, to, together, from media outrage to spiritualism and, and religion and changing in cultures. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about or ask you about a while back, you did had a fantastic quote and video that that got a lot of attention, speaking against religion as such, organized religion. Mm. That if there is a god, then he allowed all of these things. Uh, uh, to happen, which I only realised when preparing f uh, f for this, there was an attempt to have you ar arrested for blasphemy in Ireland. <laughs> it's, it's why it came to mind when you mentioned <laughs> Irish there. Obviously, that all all fell through. But I wanted to talk... Obviously, you've gone over that in great detail, but I wanted to talk a little bit more about r r religion with you because as someone who grew up, went to an all-boys Catholic school, I very much rallied against religion and was very much it's it's not for me it's the the root of all evil and it was only in l l later life and more recent years that i've realized how much we have to thank religious scholars for and how mm. there was a period that it wasn't kind of si science versus religion it was it was a joint thing and there, again this is another divide and rivalry which we now see as the two opposites that were never the case it was kind of so much of our, our our scientific development our philosophical development was rooted in in religious scholars and those who were willing to look at what science can't explain almost yes uh, that's absolutely true i mean the very practice of what is known in bible study or uh, as exegesis which is which is the, the the taking of of a text and the pouring over it and analyzing it and parsing it and finding meaning in it finding a a, a, a meaningful meaning if i can put it that yeah. way and that exists obviously with uh, biblical scholars in the talmudic jewish tradition as well as in the christian later christian tradition and in the Islamic tradition, where there are holy texts that are poured over and analysed with this exegesis. And those tools, the tools of, 
of critical thinking that you apply even to something that might be regarded as a superstitious, superstitious text were the essential tools that were then developed into the scientific mm. tools. And there are certain places like Cordoba in Italy and Toledo, in Spain and Toledo and other places which uh, at particular times in the uh, 11th century, I think I'm right in saying, held Jewish and Islamic and Christian people in the same culture, getting on with each other pretty well and cross-fertilizing with knowledge and understanding. And it was there that the first writings about optics from Muslim scientists and from Jewish and Christian uh, thinkers too, although to call them scientists would, would be wrong. They were just inquirers into yeah. the nature of things. And things can include spiritual matters as well as physical matters. And as you say, there was less of a distinction drawn. The problem came, I suppose, when I mean, we look into the 17th century and um, uh, Galileo and um, the church realizing that some of the things that were being discovered using these tools that had been developed by people like Bacon and, and William of Ockham and so on, these, these logic tools of logic and tools of, of inquiry were leading to uncomfortable conclusions about the nature of, of, of the world and the cosmos, mm. which were at odds with the Ptolemaic and Aristotelian, if one wants to give them these grand names, uh, worldviews that had held for you know, almost 2000 years. And this was deeply alarming. And so they, of course, threatened to imprison, torture, put out the eyes, and so on. And religion became the enemy, if you like, of free inquiry. And that that's the distinction that that led to what we consider or call the um, the age of reason, uh, which in itself became perhaps the Enlightenment, so-called. And those who've always defended the Enlightenment and the age of reason would say that the, the key to it was freedom of thought. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's not where the thought went, it's that you were free to think in all directions, that you couldn't be told this was off limits by a bishop or a pope. Or, or a rabbi or, or an imam that, 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 you know, you, this was the world we were born into and we were free to look at it and from a mixture of reason and experience to draw conclusions about things, about the physical matter that composes our world and, and if you like also about the hierarchies and the uh, control systems that, uh, that operate, um, in politics and monarchies and uh, bishoprics and all the other power structures. So all of these were started to be examined and th they didn't come from one simple premise. There is a Lord God who loves us and who gave us the rules by which to live in the Bible. They start with a, a free premise, uh, no prior assumptions. Um, yeah. and it's a small, it's a small logical step in a way. Okay. We'll put God to one side and just think from first principles. But the, the result, of course, was to some extent the overturning of religious power, if not of, of, of religious influence over people. And I personally have a huge respect and love for much of the Christian tradition. I'm actually Jewish by birth in, in, in that my mother was Jewish and, uh, but not from a religious Judaic family. But I grew up, you know, at school and things like that with services and, you know, mm -hmm. confirmations and communions and uh, hymns and versicles and responses. And and I loved it. I loved the music. I loved the rhythm. I loved the chanting. I loved the, the bells and smells, as they call it, of, of high Anglicanism. And I was really interested in that, the liturgical side of it. Uh, and in, as I say, the music in particular. 
And the only problem I had, and it was the only one, and it's the only one I still have, is that I don't actually believe in all the claims made about a creator or about his son being made flesh and so on. Uh, I think there's much good to, to be found in in, uh, in religion and in the best religious people. There's also a lot of obvious nonsense. Uh, uh, if you look at the Bible, is you know a huge percentage of it is just of its own time. It's of yeah. people living in the desert who found slavery to be perfectly acceptable and yeah. murdering children was fine. And, and yet, on the other hand, it was desperately important to slice off a young boy's foreskin every time he was born and, you know, all these other peculiarities. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to, <laughs> to stick to them is, is obviously bonkers because they come from another age. And if you find yourself still cleaving to those as if they are somehow utterly essential other than for psychological reasons, like Jewish people over the centuries celebrating Passover as a way of holding themselves together as they move from one, you know, purge and pogrom to another. So, um, yeah, so I'm absolutely with you. I think religion has, has given us a lot and I have huge respect for – I love the – there's a short story by Flaubert um, called A Simple Heart and Coeur Simple. And the heroine of it is this very simple maid uh, called Felicity. And there's just an image of her kneeling in front of a stained glass window that has always stayed with me. It's a, it's a wonderful, it's where the famous Flaubert parrot comes from because of the right. colour of the, the stained glass. But there, all the money and all the power that is represented in the stained glass, and yet from the simple heart, as it were, of Felicity kneeling there, there is a infinitely more holiness and infinitely more beauty and infinitely more truth than in all the grandeur of the church and its pageants and its marble and its saints and its uh, uh, you know its insistence on knowing everything yeah and uh, that is to me exactly right I, I I know I mean I would hate to mock individually pious and devout people uh, uh, on their knees as in front of their God, um, it's just not my business. But the reason I got trapped into that interview in <laughs> Ireland was that I was uh, chatting away to Gay Byrne, the uh, marvellous interviewer, the, the great sort of Johnny Carson of Ireland, if you yeah. like. Um, and we were talking about all manner of things. And then at the end, he just popped in a question, now suppose you're wrong. Suppose, <laughs> just suppose. Suppose that you, after you've died, you open your eyes and there is the creator, there is God. What would you say to him? And that's when I answered. I mean, I, I gave what is a very old indeed, um, from an ancient tradition, intellectual tradition, it's called, uh, the, the you know, the argument from evil, is, is how do you present this God that everybody, you know, we all have different views of it, but the idea of the Christian God, the Jewish God, is an entirely benevolent, he loves us completely, uh, omnipresent, omniscient, and... Uh, uh, omnipotent, so all powerful, all present, and uh, all knowing, and and all loving. And I would just, uh, and I said, I would say to him, <laughs> bone cancer in children. What are you thinking of? Whole villages wiped out by a volcano. I mean, if you really want to push it, you can say that a hurricane that kills people might be a result of human warming of the planet. But yeah. a volcano is just the way the world was made by you, Mister God, mm. and. Why, if you're all the powerful, you could have made a world that didn't 
at that. And yeah. they didn't have special insects whose whole life cycle is to bury themselves into children's eyes where they lay eggs and cause them to go blind. You could have made a world without that. Yeah. You could have made a world in which Auschwitz was impossible, in which starvation of children is impossible, in which cruelty and the, the desire to hurt didn't exist. And, and it wouldn't make us all zombies because you, you could have decided it didn't. So, I mean, it is a, it's quite a difficult argument to, to confront if you do believe in this, this loving God because you've just got to say, well, he decided he'd test us. Well, what kind of sadist and, would and, do that? <laughs> and why wasn't I born with all these cool tattoos? I've had to go through a lot of pain to get these. <laughs> they look great. I'm really happy with them. It would have been a lot easier if they were there when it started. <laughs> That's an excellent point. But I, I think the, the more I kind of learn and, and develop, the more crucial fluidity seems to be in our development as as a as a species as a, as a people and i think we're at a really tough time where we don't have that again like it doesn't have to be re- religious is nonsense or religious is yeah. is right there should be a fluidity there and i remember early days of twitter when you were more active reveling in your responses when there would be some kind of outrage about a particular kind of slang or someone has used language in a particular way and someone very pompous would jump up and say that they're destroying the English language and things like that. And you'd come out and say, like, language develops. Like, I can't remember the last time I said forsooth. It's... It's been a while. Things have developed and things change and that's what slang is part of. And I think... That can, Absolutely that's right. important, right? Particularly with someone who loves language as much as yourself. You're so right. And I think your use of the word fluidity is an excellent one. I try and express something of the same feeling by saying, um, you know, a favourite thought of mine is that there are no nouns in the universe. Uh, right. Everything's a verb. Everything yeah. is happening. It's Nothing is frozen. Language is the most ob- obvious example in, in some ways. It is yeah. constantly adapting and changing and moving and flowing and all the better for it. Um, and, I mean, it's like evolution. You, you know, it's like sort of... Uh, if an animal behaves in a certain way, you can't say, you can't behave like that. You're a frog and frogs don't do that. Well, that, that animal is adapting its behaviour. That's mm. that's what life means. And yeah. what language means is words adapting to new circumstances and so on and so forth. And you're absolutely right. But it's particularly true, I think, of um, our own attitudes, our own whatever we want to call it, morality or set of values, and, um, is, is that the... I won't say fatal, it's a bit strong, but I... I I've always been terrified of settling on a, a series of principles and ethics and moral tenets that I have to cling on to, and that is what I believe. I, I, w- without getting too sort of existentialist, I, I like the idea of waking up in the morning and discovering what I feel and think about the yeah. world, and that it might change and it might be different. I suppose there are core values, if one wants to call them that, that are bound to be to do with a dislike and fear and uh, revulsion at giving pain or at suffering generally and and, and of, uh, of course a, feel, a woe-begone feeling of inadequacy as to how one responds to that and one knows that's, you know, just like, uh, you know, we all know how 
urgent it is to try and attend to the climate crisis. But are we really doing enough? Yeah. Animals are suffering everywhere. Are we doing enough? Children are dying, not getting educated. Are we doing enough? I mean, you could drive yourself insane by the feelings of inadequacy you have in your contribution to to allevi- alleviating suffering. And um, and you can wonder whether one is. Am I a hypocrite for just thinking? Oh, I'll lay off my carbon like that because I can afford to. I can lay off this here. I can contribute to this charity here. Now I'm a good person. Doesn't, mm-hmm. That doesn't really square, does it? You don't feel like that. Because, as you say, it's fluid. Life is, you know, you're constantly journeying towards trying to achieve a certain kind of... Well, you don't want to feel pleased with yourself, but nor do you want to feel the opposite. You don't want to feel constantly angry, pissed off, that am I the best me I can be, and all, the, yeah. all those sort of phrases, you know. And I, I think the great thing is just to be okay with that and and you talk about fluidity and that takes us back to that great 60s phrase go with the flow yeah <laughs> uh, um to, to you know try and um i try not to get upset about things as if they are therefore fixed ah that means dot 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 because nothing nothing means dot 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 it, it it's tending towards it but we can steer it away you know yeah. that, that's that's because it's a flow you can steer I've I've in 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 recent years and it's still a work in progress. I'm trying more and more to move away from the way we've built again our society around actions always being based on on results. And yes. and what I mean by that is trying to like again I used to do speak a lot politically. I've backed down a lot on that now because I think what I can do is live my life in the way I think should be right and the pandemic has been a prime example of that i think the uk america and several other places have handled it absolutely appallingly the impact on the rest of the world isn't being kind of talked about enough but rather than get angry at people i've tried to make sure i've just lived how i should i've i've stayed home as much as i can i've worn my mask and so on and so forth and you'll speak to people and they'll say, yeah, but if everyone else is doing it, what difference are you going to make? So, well, no, it's not about me making a difference. Not everything should be, well, I do this to get this result. There should be an element of, I do this because I think this is the right thing to be doing at this time. And I can balance this with myself rather than I'm going to make the big difference that changes everything. Yes, exactly. Because it's, it's a mixture of arrogance and um, naivety to imagine that. Yeah. One can change things in any other way than, in a sense, but one can help by, you know, contributing to a conversation, if you like. But I sometimes wonder, and this can almost seem like a callous thought, but people talk, a bit, you know, intellectuals and so on talk about what they call an epistemic crisis, which means a crisis in knowledge. Mm-hmm. In other words, knowledge is not valued as it was. There is no authority, no proper source of knowledge. Everything is challenged. So even scientific consensus can be just, I don't, I don't agree. Um, and I'm not going to wear this. I don't think, you know, or, you know, finding excuses for thinking that doctors and nurses and medical professors are somehow either in the pay of big pharma or they're just deluded or they have some political agenda which can range from something quite mild to the extremes of the conspiracy theories that we all know about and that is regarded as the epistemic crisis this crisis that there is no agreed basis of knowledge anymore Um, but there's you could also say it's an epistemic crisis because we just know too much that a few hundred years ago for example and this is why it might sound callous there could be an earthquake in Turkey 
and no one in England would know about it. Yeah. Uh, for months. And then eventually there'd be, oh, did you hear in Ankara or something, uh, 3,000 people died ago. Oh, that's a shame. Oh. But now it happens in real time almost. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> literally you hear CNN and the uh, Sky News and people saying, bring you the news as it happens. And I always want to say, well, could you bring it just slightly after it's happened, please? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Otherwise yeah. you could intervene and stop it happening. If yeah. It has yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, <laughs> but, you know, so... And, and I remember a character in the, in the Nabokov um, novel, like, I think it's Pale Fire, I can't remember, or The Real Life of Sebastian Knight. Anyway, it doesn't matter what the title of the book was. But he's a character who has this kind of sensitivity to what happens in history. So a friend finds him crying, and, and he's crying about a battle in China that was incredibly cruel, and, and thousands of people died horribly, and children and women, and he's reading about it. And the fellow goes, where, where did this happen? And, and, and he, expl- he says, where? And he says, and when did you get the news? He said, well, it's in this book. It happened in you know, the year 1213. He said, oh! The fellow says, I thought this had recently happened. Well, why are you so upset? And he says, well, I'm upset because people a thousand years ago suffered. Yeah. You're upset when people a thousand miles away suffer. Why shouldn't I be upset? Because it's a thousand years ago. Why should the distance in time mean less than the distance in miles? They're all fellow humans and they suffer. The fact that they're not suffering literally now is not the point. And I, it's kind of weird. It just makes you think a little. And Yeah, of, of, if, of how things yeah. impact us and why they impact us. It's yeah. really interesting. And I, I grew up in, in, in the rural wilds of Norfolk and, and it, you know, it really was pretty i mean there were people i met who who one person i met had never even been to norwich but most of the people in the villages around had certainly never been to london yeah and they didn't follow news the only news they followed was that you had to be a bit careful sometimes i remember once walking along this i say street a lane in a little village and i it, it, i was listening to the cricket on a national panasonic transistor radio that was <laughs> my ear was my favorite little thing and uh, an old boy came up with a stick and rather expertly whipped it out of my hand and next to my ear where it clattered and broke on the pavement and I was absolutely astonished. It was just like this 70-year-old man had just attacked me and broken my radio. And then he started talking about the Japanese, and he'd been a prisoner of war in, in wow. the Japanese. And, and the, the, the Norfolk Regiment had been one of the worst affected by, by the Changi Railway and all the horrors of being a prisoner of war of the Japanese camps then and Burma Railway or whatever. And, and so they... It was quite common back in the 60s and 70s to see Japanese cars being kicked and and that happening to me. So that was a strange thing. But apart from that, it was interesting to to grow up in such a rural community where there was absolutely no interest in the rest of the world, or in Mm. politics particularly. It was all... Gossip about, not, I mean, gossip makes it sound cheap, but it was stories about, oh, have you heard Mrs. So-and-so's had a baby? Or have you heard that they were this or that? Or, you know, and that was enough to keep everybody talking, everybody interested. And if someone in the pub or whatever, while there was a dark game going on, started to talk about gender or about left and right, the people would stare at them as if they were insane. They just got on with their lives. 
And the fact that there were storms blowing around the world, there was, I guess at the time, there was the Vietnam War and there was Watergate and goodness knows what else. And some people were regarding the world as going to hell in a handcart or to hell in a Bonham Carter, as I call it. Um, <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, it, it just, as I say, it's sort of callous and it's impossible now. But a part of me thinks, how wonderful, if we all just got on with our lives without noticing what everyone else was up to and just yeah. concentrating on those close around us, as you say, and, and our own lives and thoughts and not not exactly not giving a shit, but just not bother. You know, just that's enough for all humans to concentrate, just as animals do. Yeah. And there's a, there was an experiment that I think was run by that now rather discredited but fascinating man, B.F. Skinner, who, who was the sort of leading light of behavioural science for, for many years in the 40s and 50s, right up until he was basically humiliated by Chomsky, but that's an, another story. But um, if you put a load of mice in a glass or perspex tray, shallow perspex tray, and, and put it in the water, they run around randomly and the tray stays afloat. But if you scale it up to humans, he couldn't get it to stay afloat for more than about two seconds. Wow. Because humans have the problem of consciousness and knowing. Yeah. So they see they're tipping one way and they all run the other way to compensate and they overcompensate and the thing capsizes. Yeah. But the mice don't know anything. They just get on with being mice. And so the kind of brownian motion of their scurrying backwards and forwards keeps the thing on an even keel. Wow. Now, I don't want to establish a political system based on B.F. Skinner's mice, but <laughs> it sort of speaks to what I was saying about if you just forget this, forget the world. Mm. You know, the, uh, uh, the, the, the poet Wordsworth, who, who, whom I think more and more as I get older was an extraordinarily wise and profound poet. You know, he's so easy just to think of daffodils and, you know, the countryside and so on. But in one of his sonnets, it begins very famously with, the world is too much with us getting and spending and and that simple thought the world is too much with us and what should be with us is our friends our families those we care about you know our immediate circle our sense of our own fulfillment and what we can do to make those we see every day happier and cheerful and become friends and look after but to think that we're basically helping the world by squawking about huge abstract things that we have no... It's, it's basically being like King Lear and yelling at the storm. Blow yeah. winds and crack your cheeks, you know. It's, it's, and he was mad. <laughs> you know? I think the uh, and, and, and another part of it is, it, it, obviously, we've not got the capacity to take in every problem in the world. No. But all, all we hear about are the crushingly sad things around the world or the the, the infuriating things around the world and there's been points where my my partner has become kind of overwhelmed by it when there was particularly last year when there was so much going on in america and all sorts of just horrible r r racism and loads of other violence and i kind of said and this sounds like it's dumbing it down so much but you've got to bear in mind that there's probably hundreds of thousands if not millions of kids who've tasted ice cream for the first time today Yes, and we can't know that. We can't hear about that. There is so much no. good going on in the world, but the bad is magnified because it needs to be addressed. So yep. we need to, at points, try and balance out and go, or you know, there's m m millions of, of d d dogs whose owners have just come home and they're so happy and excited to <sighs> yes. see them. 
And these yes. aren't the things that 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 we we bring upon ourselves when opening, our, as you say, our timelines and scrolling through other people's mm. r- rage. I guess so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, absolutely. I mean, I take uh, I take these ideas for a walk, as it were. I'm really not saying we shouldn't ever concern ourselves with the fate of the world and of course, the, of you know, the big things, but but there is just a sense that maybe. Um, we could, you know, spend more time privileging the uh, that's that which is close to us, and and the as you say, the happy moments and the yeah. living life within the sphere of a of a normal animal. You, you spoke of um, of news being brought l- live as it happens, <laughs> and one of the things I wanted to talk a little bit about, if it's okay, we did p- postpone one of our podcast chats um, a while back, and I found out why when you put out a hugely moving and emotional video about your 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 battle with with prostate cancer and i i emailed you immediately about it because i just thought you handled it so perfectly and really addressed it honestly and openly but you did do it kind of you kind of beautifully you went through it the way you needed to and yes. privately, and then when you were ready, rather than the, the need nowadays for everything to be this public, particularly if you're in the public eye, everything has to be a public journey. And yes. I thought that was beautiful. What was the kind of, yeah, the choice and thought process? It was of, exactly how that. Are you, I mean, I, uh, I was quite, well, you know, once you, you sit in that chair opposite a, um, a consultant who says, well, yes, the tests are, uh, as we suspected, I'm afraid it is cancer. When you hear those words, mm. um, which you've kind of prepared for all your life because we've all put ourselves in that chair imagining what it would be like how would I respond would I be noble and brave would my bottom lip quiver would I sob would I scream no you're wrong check again or whatever (laughs) um and but uh, of all the the thoughts that crowded me one that was pretty clear early on was that I I didn't want to uh go through the procedures and the uh, the various um, treatments and whatever that would be thrown at me and that I would uh, undergo. I didn't want to do them in real time with the public. I ju- that would just be too distracting. I, I yeah. wanted, because you, you mentioned it as saying that it was a battle and I've tried always to avoid that word as much as a tip of the cap to my dear departed friend Christopher Hitchens, the journalist who wrote a wonderful article called The Topic of Cancer when he had esophageal cancer, which took him, um, and saying, you know, the one thing it isn't is a battle, and it just plain isn't. Right. Uh, it's an ongoing thing. It never, you know, once you've had it, it's, the chances are you're always going to have to be, as I am, tested. I was tested just, you know, the, the, other, the other week again, and I'm just awaiting a, and, and the results of another one because these you know there's always the possibility of a few cells of hell around mm. um but the the one thing you do is you submit you submit to those who know what they're doing you submit to a surgeon a urologist a, um, a doctor a, you know a nurse all the people around you who know exactly what they're doing you don't want to get in their way how how was that as someone who's had such agency over your career and your choices <laughs> and from podcast to audiobooks as said having the, the ability to mm. record audiobooks in your house having such control over your life to have to go this is something that is out of my control this is something i have to hand control over to someone else it it it's almost a relief really yeah. um just to say okay i you know what's the best thing i can do is what you say to them what do you need me to do yeah. um and you know they'll say 
you know, they'll try and say, don't worry. Uh, I mean, I know enough about, I have a, you know, a typical sort of uh, amateur scholar of the body's, uh, you know, interest in, in, in various things. And I know enough about, you know, cortisol and stress hormones and so on to know that if, if one is anxious and feeling stressed and not relaxed, it actually is clinically bad for you, whatever your uh, disease, whatever condition you might be in. One of the pleasing things that's developed in medicine over the past 20 years or so is that now doctors and surgeons and nurses are taught much more about eye contact and um, maybe laying a hand on someone's arm, explaining things to them in a friendly, warm way, making them feel utterly relaxed and cared for, um, that those have, you know, rather than the old patriarchal bow-tied doctor saying, we'll soon have you on your feet, Mr. Fry, and all that, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, much more your friend. And that is, it's not, uh, it's not political correctness or wokeness, it is clinically very sound so basically my job was to relax and not worry which is a peculiar thing to say but that that's you know that it's not a battle it's not i mean how would you battle it it's it's something you can't see it's a disruption of cells way down in some part of your body you're not even aware of particularly and it's not aware that it's in a battle it's just doing what it does that's the thing that gets me i i struggle a lot like having had people go through cancer and and leukemia and other things i completely understand the cancer research kind of we're going to beat this we're all going to run and all this but i i struggle personally with the personification of it as this thing that is that we've all got to fight it doesn't care that you've done a march or a walk or whatever else it's no you're right it's kind of it's almost giving it more power to demonize it like that cancer becomes this kind of Ghoul. I, underst- I said I understand it because particularly in those yes. moments oh, you yes. want that enemy and you want Matt, yeah. we're going to do something about it because it is so out of your control as, as yes. you say. Yes, sometimes, you're absolutely right, sometimes uh, uh, giving a, a name to your pain as it were is a very good idea and it can be a battle and I would say I definitely had a battle and I gave it a name when I gave up smoking, uh, yeah. uh, you know, however many, 15 years ago, whenever it was, that there you think think of someone you really dislike you know, you just can't bear. It could be a, a journalist or a, a, a politician or whatever it is. And they are in your stomach or somewhere around your duodenum, your diaphragm, and they want you to have a cigarette. Mm. And every time you breathe in like that, they go, yes, and they get a bit bigger and a bit stronger. Yeah. And every time you say, no, I'm not going to have the cigarette now, they go, no, have it, go on, have it. Go, no. Yeah. No, Piers Morgan, or whatever you've decided to call this <laughs> yeah. creature inside you, I'm not going to give you that. I'm going to, and, and and it will it will waste away. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah, that, that was my psychological thing. Plus, yeah. uh, plus I took a, a a pill called Champix, which may have been helpful too. But but anything you can do in the in those circumstances, because there you are fighting something that is kind of part of you. Addiction. I don't know if you've mm. ever been an addict, but you know that is obviously a big big issue in our world and yeah. and i think that is a battle in a sense uh, it, it sort of has to be doesn't it you can't submit sure. to giving up something you have to you have to take up arms to, yeah. to defeat it again the language is always bizarre to me because giving up something doesn't sound like a positive the giving up as 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 a term right. it sounds like it's it's a negative it's like right no that's I've, very I've, true i've given up slowly killing myself <laughs> yes but i suppose I it guess. would sound a bit sort of fey to say i'm embracing life or yeah, something. yeah find some other <laughs> yeah, phrase yeah yeah <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, as we, I mean, I could talk to you for hours, Stephen, obviously. Yes, but I don't want to take actually, up too much yep. of your time, so I'll start to wrap things up. But um, mm. I guess I want to know what's ahead. I, I love when you do your podcast series, um, but I get a huge excitement when you pop up on TV in things like It's a Sin, which was just oh. absolutely amazing piece of work last year. What is the plan? Is 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 acting a focus? Is your I, own writing? I'd, I'd hate to give up acting. I mean, I'm sort of quite aware that, in a sense, I burned my acting boats many years ago in that, what, I mean, I love acting and I, I, I may be wrong to, to think that I could have concentrated on just that. But I've presented myself as myself in things yeah. like QI so much that it, I have to be very careful about what sort of role I pick. And indeed, I guess people have to be very careful about what they cast me as because, you, especially in Britain, you don't want people to go, oh, well, there's Stephen Fry, what's he doing? You know, yeah. They're not, in a strange way, they're not seeing the role. But 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 if it's the right kind of role, like in It's a Sin, which I felt, you know, playing a Tory MP, closeted Tory MP somehow, was, was in my wheelhouse, as Americans <laughs> like to say. Um, and I've done a couple of last year i did a, a netflix series called the sandman which is coming out in about a month or so can't I wait think. for that neil gaiman is a Gaiman's, dear yeah, friend genius, and just his yeah. his Amazing. his adaptations to tv so far have been perfect yeah. his involvement have, in them really. yeah i love american gods it hasn't yeah. been for, uh, covered enough i don't think american yeah. gods i just yeah. love it with uh, ian mcshane as fabulous as wednesday the, <laughs> as the odin character yeah. um so there's that and i also did i played um but, but, but a wonderful role. I mean, a sad role, but uh, uh, very uh, interesting. In Hulu, which is a Disney streaming entity, I don't know. If, can you get Hulu in England? I'm not sure. I don't think so. I think most of the stuff comes on other... Yeah, It does. So it'll come here. on Sky Atlantic yeah. or something, I dare say. But it's called The Dropout, and it's 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 the story of uh, Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. Right. Um, and while we were filming it, she was on trial up in San Francisco. We were in Hollywood uh, making this with wow. Amanda Seyfried playing her. Wow. And a lovely cast with, um, you know, William H. Macy and uh, Waterston and people like that. And, and, and uh, Sam Waterston and, and I... Play the scientist in it, um, and and I really enjoyed doing that. So that's coming out, I think, in a couple of weeks in America. But when it's coming out here, I'm not sure. Um, so there are a few things like that which I love, and I'm doing a couple of documentaries. I've got one coming out, I think, on the 28th of February. It's called Fantastic Beasts, and it's the idea is to relate all the very popular, you know, fabled creatures like mermaids and dragons yeah. and, and unicorns, which is, mean so much to children these days, dinosaurs, you know, dragons are dinosaurs, essentially, yeah. to find out where they came from. You know, why, why do dragons exist in cultures all over the world and have done for thousands of years? Um, um, and um, similarly, mermaids and unicorns and what they mean and so on. And, and I really enjoyed that. They involved a bit of filming in America and in Scotland and in England. And I'm also doing a documentary called A Year on Planet Earth, which is a, 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 a marvellously ambitious four-part documentary, one for each season, um, mm -hmm. uh, which ITV are doing. They haven't been in the natural history 
space, as I suppose one should call it, for, for many years, yeah. quite rightly leaving it to the Natural History Unit in Bristol and the magnificence that is David Attenborough. But uh, they just felt that this was an interesting story or, or way of telling it. And in fact, I'm going next week to Iceland to do some filming on it and then to Mexico. Oh wow! Uh, so, so I'm so I'm keeping busy. I'm I'm happy to say, I'm very lucky. Yeah, they they all all sound fantastic. As I sit here opposite me, I've got um a kind of artist rendition of a of a a, a rhinoceros's head on my wall, and underneath it, I have a plaque that says a unicorn because I believe rhinoceroses are the reality of Absolutely. of unicorns. Fact, there's there's the fantasy, and then the reality is these wonderful beasts that don't fit this white svelte version of what a unicorn should be but they're glorious all the same and in fact the the indian um rhinoceros uh, which is the one that looks really armor armor plated almost in the most kind of wrinkle that that is is called uh uh unicornis is is its uh it's its latinate name um yeah and there was uh there were other uh predecessors to the rhinoceros that were even larger with huge single horns and they did overlap with human beings as well and the other thing that people don't think about is at least i didn't um, i mustn't assume everyone is dumb as that (laughs) as dumb as me in that (laughs) regard but you know um you it's easy to think that we only as it were, discovered dinosaurs in the 19th century when ladies in long skirts in Lyme Regis found fossils yeah. and scientists in London said, ah, and, and worked out what these creatures were. But, of course, for thousands of years, human beings have been walking the planet and we've seen these stone bones poke up through the through yeah. the ground. And there are places in, for example, I went to Utah, the, the, the Cleveland Lloyd Dinosaur Quarry, which is the largest uh, a Jurassic collection of, of, of fossils in the world, and they're open, you know. So, and the local people, the Utes, uh, the the local in, indigenous peoples uh, before the Europeans came, would would have seen these and used them as indeed as clubs and things. And what it, they had no uh, data to suggest that these were the bones of animals that had been extinct for millions of years. Yeah. As far as they were concerned, they could be living in a in a in a mountain around the corner or in a cave yeah, somewhere yeah. and 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 that's true around the world so that you can see a little bit of how the dragon might have come about in 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 that regard it's really fascinating completely i can't wait to uh, to watch all of it and i'm i'm glad we finally got to sit down and chat i'm not i'm not a spiritual person but one of the few things i do always feel is that these conversations they happen when they were meant to and I it feels so like it was agree. the perfect a time to talk now so that's been an absolute pleasure thank you for your time thank you Pip. loved it thank you for allowing me to question st- st- Stephen Fryers as, as, <laughs> yes. as it were <laughs> you did what thou sh- shouldst not do that shall not question Stephen Fry that shall not question Stephen Fry You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There we go. That was Stephen Fry. I told you it was a good one. I told you. I, I felt I felt he did me some f- f- some f- favours in that episode as well. I've uh, There was a few things where I brought up a subject 
that I had a surface level amount of knowledge on and he jumped on it and gave the complete history of as if I already knew it, which made me look far cleverer than I actually am. So yeah, you heard the joy in my voice throughout that. I loved talking to Stephen. He's been so gracious with me over the years in interactions and I'm so glad we got to sit down and finally have this chat. As said, if this is your first time, head into the back catalogue. I'm, tr- I'm trying to think of people I didn't mention in the first one. I've had R- R- Ramesh Ranganathan on numerous times, Emmy Award winning Brett Goldstein. R- recently, amazing chats with L- L- Lucy Pinder, Ivana Lynch, Emma Debiri, Kelechi Okafor, end of last year, Edgar Wright. Loads of really good people. Essentially, go to whatever your favourite podcast platform is and type distraction pieces. And then any name that comes to mind, and chances are they've been on. If not, if you just type distraction pieces, I think most platforms will give you the like the most listened to few episodes or whatever. I've had. I was, I was thinking I've not listed many musicians. I've had Fatboy Slim on. I've had Roots Maneuver on. I've had Frank Carter, Frank Turner, both the Franks, all the Franks, Billy Bragg. I've had R- Russell Kane, Russell Brand, and Russell Howard, all the Russells. Um, I've had Alan Moore, I've had Neil Gaiman, um, I've had some amazing people essentially. So jump in that back catalogue and have a good swim about and enjoy yourself. Gail Porter, that was an amazing episode. It was a two-parter, it was really good. Stephen Graham, I've had him on loads of times. I'm going to stop listing people that have been on the podcast because this is annoying even for me. But yeah, if you enjoyed it, go and check them out. And I'll be back next week with more podcasts. I've put out a podcast every week for the last eight years, so it ain't stopping anytime soon. We may have peaked. <laughs> we may have just peaked with Stephen Fry, but let's see. Let's keep going. We can still do better. So I'll be back next week. Until then, stay safe and stay sane. Ta-ta. Oh, and f- follow me on Twitch, twitch.tv forward slash Pipio. Peace.